0: Hello and welcome to what is now Season 5 of Pebble in the Pond podcast. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year ANZMHA hosts several leading mental health conferences which give us the opportunity to connect with incredible industry leaders, lived experience speakers, researchers, academics and frontline workers as they share fascinating stories and projects which are changing the face of mental health within our community. Listen in as we go one-on-one with these inspiring people and dive deep into their work. It is truly a privilege to bring you their stories. Our podcast episodes may contain content which could be triggering for some people. If you need support, please contact Lifeline on 131114 or visit the Get Help page on anzmh.asn.au. Join us for Pebble in the Pond each Tuesday and let's get into season 5. After moving with her family to Australia at the age of 11, Shivani completed her engineering degree, then her MBS to pursue a career in leadership. Shivani then experienced a life changing trek to Nepal, came home and quit her corporate job, and also quit her relationship. Now, over the last 21 years of running her own businesses, Shivani has presented to over a quarter of a million people across 18 countries, coached over 1,500 leaders globally, and authored eight books. In today's episode, we chat about Shivani's travels, her experiences running multiple businesses, and the mental health challenges that come along with that, as well as her current work, passion projects, with education, and plans for the future. Welcome, Shivani. Shivani, thanks so much for spending some time with me and sharing your journey, your story with myself and our listeners. I appreciate your time.
1: Yeah, thank you. Pleasure.
0: Shivani, do you want to tell, give our listeners a bit of context as to your background, where it all started for you, and then we can talk about what amazing things you're up to at the moment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I moved to Australia at the age of 11 from India. And when I got here, I had those typical Indian parents that were very much into just making sure you got a great education. I didn't really know what I wanted to do as a kid. So I was always very inspired by my dad and also my grandfather who were both engineers. So I thought I'd follow their footsteps and graduate as an engineer and started working as one and realized that actually I probably have to be around for a very long time to get into management and leadership. And like Mm -hmm. very, you know, typical Gen Y and Zs these days, as we speak about, very impatient, wanted to get there very fast. So I thought, I might just do some more study, do an MBA and try and get into leadership roles. And funnily enough, they were pretty short of women engineers and also women that wanted to finish an MBA and get into leadership positions. So it kind of skyrocketed my career and started to get into a bunch of different manufacturing industries, mining industries, and started to work in them in the semi and then into leadership roles. And then something really interesting happened, Sam, that it was just after September 11th and uh, I had already booked a trip to Nepal, which I'd already moved four times. And I thought, look, I've got to go. The Australian authorities said that it was a good time to go. It was fine. It wasn't that I was going into the US. And I got to Nepal and everybody else, because of the fear of September 11, had cancelled their trip. So mm-hmm. I got to Nepal and I was the only person on this trek for four weeks. And this trek was with a Sherpa, a guide and a cook and me. So it was basically me, and it was probably the first time in my life I'd really stopped to think about life, and Nepal changed my life. Like, it was incredible. It was now just over 20 years ago. The people were beautiful. The kids were beautiful. The conversations I had, and I just had this time for reflection, and, you know, I know we're here talking about mental health. Like, we wouldn't have called it that 20-plus years ago, but it was really this time to stop and work out, you know, not only what I wanted to do, but more importantly, who I wanted to be. Mm. So as a result of that trip, I came back and I quit my corporate job in the first week Mm. of coming back. And I was also in this very mediocre relationship and I quit my relationship in that first week. And so for the last 20 years, I've had an opportunity to now work with some amazing companies, like over 250 companies and I've worked for myself. I've run a bunch of different businesses. Some I've scaled and exited. One was a bit of a disaster. So that didn't work at all. And I've and now gone into speaking and coaching work full time. So that's kind of my wow trajectory in terms of you know, what I've done. Yeah.
0: When you moved to Australia at the age of 11, was that with your family or was it by yourself? Yeah,
1: no, it was with my parents okay. and my younger brother. Yeah. And so it was my dad's idea to move. And You know, I have this incredible dad and if you said to him, you know, look, why did you move to Australia? He very quickly will answer that and he'll say, look, it's for Shivani because I just wanted her to have the same rights and choices and opportunities that I did or my brother's or her brother does. And, you know, he's the youngest of nine kids and he always felt that he wouldn't get that opportunity to be able to guide and allow those opportunities for me. So, so blessed that he made that, you know, made that decision. And as a result of that, I, you know, we skyrocketed here. The first couple of years, I must admit, Sam, were pretty challenging. You know, I know that a couple of kids, I I copped a fair bit of racial slurring. It was the first time in my life I didn't even think of myself as a brown person. So I landed in Australia, and you know, ninety-nine percent of the people were beautiful, and I've had some amazing opportunities as a result of living in this amazing country.
0: Wow, how is India going as a country, as it relates for families or for women at the moment? Is there been many Or much progression at all?
1: Yeah, I think in the bigger cities, absolutely. In fact, I remember when we moved to Australia, we would go back and my cousins would be like, I just thought you'd be more modern. Like, you seem to be like dressing pretty conservatively. I'm like, that's because my parents are stuck in a, a little time warp and I'm still dressing the way that I was, you know, 10 years ago. But I think the bigger cities, absolutely, there's more women working. There's more female entrepreneurs, which is great to see. The rural areas, probably not. There's still a lot of challenges there which often then relate to the the lack of education of women and girls in rural villages. So, you know, uh, India has now just recently taken over China in terms of being the largest population on the planet in a country and that, that just happened in the last sort of few weeks. Is that right? And that's probably not a great thing to be number one at, right, in terms of the fact that I'm not sure how the birth control because of religious reasons will occur and I think that's a real challenge for that country and the government and the the people that live within it. But I think in cities, absolutely, there's been more movement. In my family, I'm certainly the first female in my lineage. You know, my mum has a degree, didn't work. My grandmother went to school, my aunties. So none of them really had that opportunity to work once they were married off, so to speak. So I feel really blessed the fact that I, you know, not only get to work, but also get to work the way that I like.
0: India is renowned as a, a very spiritual place. Is spirituality something that's always been part of your life or your family's life?
1: My family's probably more religious than spiritual. I avoided it. As a teenager, I just wanted to fit into Australia and I just wanted to not be brown. I didn't want to sound Indian. I didn't want to eat Indian food. And I certainly wanted to stay away from anything spiritual. I remember my cousin in India, when we visited, she said, look, Shivani, I could teach you how to meditate, meditate, and it'll change your life. And I was like, look, I'll do that when I'm 80. Like, I have no interest (laughs) in learning how to meditate. But in the last sort of 15, maybe 18 years, perhaps since that trip to Nepal now 20 plus years ago, it's been something that's pulled me back. You know, I've made more trips to India in the last decade or so pre-COVID than I did in the previous years. I started to work with an NGO there. I really have gone back and learned how to become a meditator. And I've gone back and explored the things that were already in my family that I kind of ignored for the first couple of decades. But the last, yeah, last 15, 18 years, absolutely more so.
0: Incredible. Yeah. When you went to Nepal, what was it about the place or, or the experience? Was it, was it the fact that you were isolated in, in an unfamiliar setting, a very beautiful setting at that, I guess, but yeah, what, what was it that really put you into that mindset or to, to have that shift and make you want to make a change?
1: Well, firstly, I think I expected Nepal to be similar to India. I expected there to be a lot of poverty, which there was. I expected people to beg for food and money, but nobody really did that. I mean, I notice I love interacting with locals, whichever country I'm traveling to, but particularly I love interacting with kids. And I just noticed that their kids were just so beautiful. They would just run up to me and have a conversation, even if they could only speak one or two words of English. And somebody had suggested to me to carry these bag of lollipops you know they're like one or two cents each and so I would use them as a little bit of an interaction when we'd stop under from our trek after a couple of hours of walking and you know little kids would run up and then they'd just hang around and I remember this one particular kid he invited me into his hut and there were seven other people in this tiny hut that would have been you know smaller than my bathroom and the family had just sat down to eat And uh, so rather than this mum, who obviously was very poor, and rather than scold her son who had brought me into this hut, she like beckoned me to sit down. She sort of, you know, signaled to me to sit down and they were just having rice and the water that the rice had been cooked in with a pinch of salt. And uh, he sort of introduced me and I sat down on the ground and she took out little bits of rice from all the other seven people, mainly from hers. And she just offered me this plate of food. And uh, I get teary even just thinking about that now because I think, you know, I didn't know whether that was their only meal for the day or how they lived, but there was such generosity. There was such givingness in terms of who they were. And uh, they were very beautiful, generous people in terms of what they, and I had never experienced that kind of my, you know, my family's probably more middle-class in India And I had never experienced that set of generosity when people have so little, but with asking nothing in return. And so for me, I realized in Nepal that these people were so content and, you know, I just bought my first house. I was in a fancy job. I earned some great money. I was in a relationship. But despite all of that, I just didn't feel very, I didn't feel very content. I didn't feel like I was very happy. I didn't feel like I was very successful and they seemed to have so little And they seem to be so successful. I think you're right. I think definitely having space, when you have some space in your diary, you have some space in your mind and you're walking through these beautiful, you know, in in nature, I think that has a lot to do with taking some time out and also just starting to go, you know, sort of stripping back your identities, I guess, and you start to think about who you are a lot more. So yeah, definitely the place had a lot to do with that. I always say to people, you don't need to go to Nepal to find yourself. I think just having some space and silence and really thinking about who you are is probably
0: more- So you came back from that trip back to Australia, where were you living at the time?
1: In Australia, I was living in Adelaide, okay. South Australia
0: And then so you made some pretty drastic changes to your life Yeah What made you then want to get into, was it then you went into your own business?
1: Yeah, I just, I, one of the things I loved in Nepal was freedom Like this word still is probably very resonant for me and also becomes one of my values now so having the freedom to work the hours I choose, the freedom to work with people I want to work with, the freedom to do the work that really inspires me, that became really clear to me there. So I didn't want to be hemmed into, you know, the nine to five or the eight to five job. And and I read this great quote about the same time that said that entrepreneurs work 24 seven because they don't want to work nine to five. And even though you know, some people go, oh my goodness, that means you're constantly on. I just loved that saying because I went, that's me. Not that I would have called myself an entrepreneur at that point, yeah. but I loved that idea that I could work when I wanted, like i get up at four in the morning and work or in the evening, which, you know, often doesn't work for me, but I could work the hours I wanted. Like if I wanted to read a book in the middle of the day, I could do that and do the things that I really loved and kind of design my life around the way that I wanted to, wanted to live and work.
0: And so it's typical, did you start a business from scratch?
1: Yeah, I did. I got headhunted with a couple of different companies and they were saying, Why don't you come and be a recruiter? I think even a real estate agent said, you know, this will be great. But I was very clear on the fact that I didn't want to work for other people. I probably wasn't so clear about what work I did want to do. So I was more clear about what I didn't want to do. But I just, yeah, set up this business and I remember the first week because I'd gone from this pretty high end leadership, you know, global role. And I remember I started my little office and I printed my little business cards in my office and I remember sitting there and nobody rang me, like, because nobody knew what I did. And I didn't have those networks outside. And I remember crying, like on the on like day three, going, I'm an idiot. Like I can't believe I've just quit this really high paying job and I've now started this business. But luckily, you know, that was a pretty big dip and came out the other side.
0: It can be quite tough and lonely in the especially when you're starting a business on your own. What do you think made you get through those hard years, especially, you know, when you start a business, it's like having an infant. I mean, it's very, it needs you to be there a lot to do a lot of the, to do a lot of the work, wearing many hats. How did you cope?
1: Yeah, well, I think, you know, when you make a list of 71 things that need to be done in your names next to all of Mm. it, you go, okay, I better, better Mm. divide up, Mm. you know, parts of myself into different things. I think hanging around with some really smart people really helped. I've always felt that it was really important. You know, a lot of people talk about networking, which is really about clients and how they can grow their business from getting the revenue. I also think networking is really important to be with like-minded people. And I have always tried to join different groups. I remember at the time I kind of fell into speaking and somebody suggested, you know, why don't you join this group called Professional Speakers Australia? So I joined them. And then you start to hang around with some people that are in very, I guess, in a similar boat. They're trying to also grow their business, depending on what stage that they're at. They've got very similar problems, whether they're startup or the middle or they're, you know, even if they're running a five or $10 million business. So hanging around some with some really like-minded people has always been something I've sought. I also made a rule, I think, when I first started that I would have a coffee with somebody new every week. So when I met people, I would just invite them and, you know, buy them a $3 or $4 coffee, whatever it cost at the time. And I just get them to talk about them themselves and get them to talk about what their business was, what they did. I didn't try and sell anything or say, you know, buy me or buy my services or buy this time. And I learned a lot from people just listening to them. It's something that I've always, you know, really enjoyed just meeting people and finding out about them. And then after a while, people start to get to know you and then, you know, slowly work starts to roll in.
0: Mm. And so you you obviously have really good skills in relationship building and Tell us about some of the other skills that leaders require, whether in business or other areas of their life.
1: I think as a leader, it's really important, you know, and everybody talks a lot about vision and having a vision statement and having a vision, but I think the clarity of vision is so important. I believe that, you know, when it comes to having a vision, I always like doing a bit of a a mind map of different products or services I might be doing. I also like to have a vision for in terms of what I'm going to do in each year. So I go through this process that I've designed for myself and I now share that with other people that, you know, there are seven areas of passion in your life and everybody says, do something you're really passionate about. But really, it's difficult to pursue everything that starts to interest you or ignite you. So I always say that in those seven areas of passion, then find out the top three that you want to master for the year. Some people say, look, it's going to take me 18, you know, months or more. For me, I always say, I think mastery is really important when it comes to passion. So passions by themselves don't lead to a lot, but passions with specific goals and targets and clear objectives, and making sure what that that year looks like for you. So on the first of January each year, now for twenty years, I get clear on what are the top three things I want to master, and then I set a lot of goals in those top three things. So in my top three passions, I might have five or seven goals each, but in the areas that I'm not going to be able to master, I need to kind of survive and do okay at. I might only have one or two goals, and then I create a vision board. Based on those goals. So, little pictures, you know, hand drawings and different things that inspire me when I look at that particular vision board to be able to do that. So, I always go into a fair bit of detail around that vision of clarity. To me, yes, it's a statement, but it's more, it's deeper than that. You want to be able to look at something every day and that inspire you in terms of what you do for your your work. The other thing that I've learned is that I've always believed that it's really important from a communication perspective to speak well. So I went and got some skills around speaking. I went and worked with a couple of coaches around that. But the opposite was true of being a leader. To be a really great leader, you need to have very good listening skills and actually be quiet and really, really enhance your listening. So over time, I've had to really practice that. It's not a natural thing in my personality to really just listen. So I've had to really get some skills to be able to really listen, but really listen with intent and really listen deeply in terms of what people are trying to say. And particularly when I stepped into the coaching world, speaking, you know, is different because you're, I guess, the expert on stage, you're the expert on this podcast. But when you're in coaching mode, I always found that it's most of the work is actually listening and then being able to dissect some of that, what people have said, into hopefully some wisdom for the person that you are coaching. And so listening is a really important skill and I think it's a bit underrated in terms of letting people speak, letting people. Get to the end of that. And now that I'm a mum, I'm, you know, trying to move from speaking into listening more as I've got two teenagers. And that's challenging because I want to pass my wisdom and my experience and my ways to doing things which they don't agree with most of the time. So how do I listen to what they have without rather than giving them solutions? And look, there's many other aspects, but they're probably the two that I try and practice as much as I can. I don't get that right all the time.
0: Very well put. The to, to grow, scale a business requires a fair bit of skill, tenacity, grit, determination, but also leadership vision, which you obviously spoke about just then. Tell me a bit about the challenging times when you're growing a business, when you got staff. Tell us a little bit about the pressures of business and, and how you coped in those times to get through those.
1: There were so many challenges, you know, daily. And then there were bigger challenges. One of the businesses, I ran out of cash. So I started a kids play center and I thought, great, we'll start off with one and then we'll multiply them into 10. And I'd also had a vision to be able to take 10% of the profits and set up some kids play centers in Africa and India. And the business was going pretty well, but it needed a fair bit of cash injection. I didn't manage my cash flow very well. That was a pretty expensive lesson in terms of just going... You can have a great vision, you can have great people, you can have a great product, but if you're going to run out of cash, that's really hard. So I've got better and had then had to go and study quite a few books and work with some coaches myself and some teachers and that's still an ongoing journey in terms of how to get better at cash management. I know that sounds really simple, but it was so in the throes of this particular business and it was going so well that we just ran out of cash. Staff has always been fairly challenging. I always say that, you know, staff are your best asset but also your most challenging. And one of the businesses that I grew from naught to 5 million, I ended up with almost 60 staff before I exited. And I exited that business last year. And with more staff come more personalities. With more personalities come more challenges. And there there were some times that were really tough. I mean, in COVID, for example, I was running day spas for one of the businesses. And we were shut down by the government for obvious reasons. We had, you know, almost 55 staff on the books. They were all asking questions in terms of what happens. I didn't have any answers, lots of sleepless nights. And at that stage, obviously we were all unsure in terms of how long the closures would be. And I remember my cash pools just, you know, slowly disappearing and then thinking, oh my goodness, like if this continues for six plus months, like I could go bankrupt here. And everything that I've built over 20 years, we could go backwards. We might have to sell our house, pull the kids out of school, you know, mm. and all those fears in terms of how to cope with that and how I was going to make that work. And it felt like as a business owner that a lot of that rests on, you know, your shoulders or my shoulders. And that's pretty stressful thinking that, I, you know, all these people aren't being paid. And so for many months after that, I paid my staff and I didn't pay myself while the businesses were then getting back on track and not at full capacity. And they were very, there's lots of stressful. I mean, I can go on probably for the next five hours, Sam, about how many stressful situations I think as a, as a business owner that you do. And, and I think each one is really important to then just be able to break that, that, that apart and not think too fast, you know, far into the future. Because if I started to think about, I was going to go bankrupt and my kids were not going to be able to finish the education that I dreamt for them, then I was going to get pretty paralyzed by that. So just, you know, one problem at a time that I think that's one of the reasons people stay in business is that they, again, love that freedom, but they're, they're good at problem solving in terms of what's ahead of them.
0: Were there any activities you were doing outside of the work that was just allowing you to decompress, to take, to distract yourself, to, to expel energy and adrenaline on to help cope? With the stress that you're going through?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I hired a psychologist. I just felt that my mindset was getting pretty negative at times. And it's great to have a partner and kids and friends that you could speak to. But obviously, we couldn't see a lot of people through, particularly the first part of COVID. So I hired a psychologist online. And the whole idea of the psych was to work with him to talk about how I felt, how the fact that there were so many things out of my control, and just actually have a sounding board through the duration of COVID. So I now still continue that practice and work with different people every quarter. So I still work with a psychotherapist every quarter. I have a coach every quarter. I have a meditation teacher. The other thing we noticed is that my alcohol intake went up when COVID started. You know, you'd open up a bottle of wine and there was nowhere else to go. Mm. So then you'd have a second glass or a third glass. And particularly in those three or four initial months, and it became this this habit that started to feel like, you know, there was more and more reliance on alcohol. So for me, I really needed to go, okay, you know, we have two alcohol-free days. Maybe we need to have two alcohol days and five alcohol-free days and really just start to switch a few things on its head. And so I'll give myself these little challenges. Like at the moment I'm doing, can I do 12 months without alcohol? And the first couple of months were like, I was like, I'm just stupid. Why am I doing this? This is silly. I don't drink that much anyway. But now I'm in month 10, almost going into month 11, and it feels pretty easy.
0: Congratulations.
1: Yeah. Thank you, I think. (laughs) And so I think it's been really good just in COVID just to also give yourself these little challenges to go, look, I know that's not good for me. I know that that behavior is not good for me. And just having some people help you and work through that with you. I'm a big advocate for asking for help. I probably wasn't in my teens and my 20s, but I'm, I'm a big advocate for asking for help and saying, look, I don't know how to deal with this. I don't know how to cope with this. I'm actually not sure what I'm doing here. And having just sounding boards and people around you that are really smart, they can give you a different perspective.
0: What's been part of the, I know when I, I'm 11 years sober now, but one of the things I noticed early on in the journey, I, was, I thought, oh, you know, I'll go for three months. And then I went to six months. I thought, oh, I wonder if I could do a year. And it was like a muscle. The more you used, the more you did it, the easier it got. I did know certain changes in the social circles as well. So people who used to find you wanting to hang out with you and social interactions with, with them and their drinking, that sort of changed a fair bit for me. Were there any other, were there some similar experiences for you as you have undertaken your 10 months so far?
1: Well, congratulations. 11 years is pretty amazing. <laughs> Firstly, that's amazing. I noticed that there were some people that didn't like the fact that I made that decision because, I actually don't know because, but I'm guessing that it made them uncomfortable about their behaviours. So they were like, why do you want to do this? And I said, look, I just want to have a challenge. I've never, since I was a teenager where you really want to drink and you can't wait, especially having Indian, you know, strict parents who didn't let you drink at home. They weren't the Italians. I'm like, why don't I have Italian parents who just let you drink at home? I remember as a teenager. And so I said, I just want to have this as a challenge. So I think it was a lot more about them than about me. I also noticed that in the first two or three months, I was apologizing for not drinking. I'm just doing this challenge. I'm trying it for six, you know, and if I can make it to 12 months. And then I was like, why am I apologizing? Why am I apologizing for not drinking? People aren't apologizing for drinking. So why am I apologizing for not drinking? And I also noticed that there's not a lot of options at a lot of places that you go to for some great non-alcoholic drinks. So I didn't want to end up with a sparkling water with a lime in it that I did when I was pregnant when I'd asked for that in a when a wine glass. So now I'll actually ask them to make me a mocktail. I'll ask them to make me something interesting if that's possible at different events. And I realized that for me to socialise and to connect with people, certainly my, one of my realizations in the last 10, 11 months has been I don't actually need alcohol. I've also noticed my sleep has improved drastically. Not that I was a bad sleeper, but I was an average sleeper. So I'm sleeping more deeply. And as I'm getting older, that is so much more important to me than having a big night with my girlfriends. And most of the people that I'm, that I'm hanging around don't actually care. Mm. The people that did care, I'm no longer hanging around mm. because I think like attracts like. So I'm just not doing a lot of the the same events and I feel really comfortable. And now that it's reaching 12 months almost, Sam, I'm going, I'm not sure I'm ready to go back. Yeah. There's no fear about being able to have it. You know, particularly I was on this uh, one business class flight. I was like, oh my God, maximizing my points and (laughs) maximizing this experience. But I'm like, I don't actually need it. I, I feel so much better without it. And so I'm not sure. It's not forever for me at this stage. But certainly I'm not in a hurry to go back when the 12 months is up.
0: Yeah. Well, congratulations on taking the first step and and setting yourself a challenge because it it is quite difficult, especially at the start. But yeah, yeah, I hope it is everything that you wanted it to be. Tell me, moving forward as it relates to where are you heading and what are you up to? And tell us a bit about the importance of mental health as it relates to what you're up to next.
1: Yeah. Well, I, had, I took a six-month sabbatical after I exited the wellness businesses. That wasn't a very easy decision for me because I don't like stopping for that long. I'm good at stopping for my little meditation practice and my yoga, but I'm not great at going, what am I going to not do for six months? So that was a really big stripping of identity, particularly having been now a business owner slash entrepreneur for 20 plus years and then the corporate world before that. And so I really struggled in my sabbatical to start off with, but a lot of it was me going, let me not just jump into another business because there were some opportunities to step into other businesses. There was also a great opportunity that came up with for a partnership in a business with somebody I know pretty well, who's I've known for six or seven years, but it was like, just stop. You can't jump into it. And one of the things I did, I'm in this great mastermind and I said to my mastermind that for my accountability... I love tattoos on other people, but I don't love tattoos on myself. So I put it in writing to my family and to my mastermind forum that if I bought a business in this six months or started anything in six months, that they could choose the size of the tattoo and the position of the tattoo and I would have to pay for it. And I've got some pretty funny guys in my my mastermind who was like, oh my God, that's going to look great on your neck. That's going to look great on the side of your cheek, which was just enough accountability for me not to then go and start up another business. So that six months was so amazing for me as the time became clearer and I became comfortable with who I was without doing anything, being doing a business. I started to really think about if I could do all of the different businesses now, what would I really want to do? And what I came back to was the full circle of where I was in Nepal 20 years ago. And funnily, I haven't been back to Nepal till this year. And then there was an opportunity to go to this amazing program and retreat in Nepal in February this year. And I went and just had this most profound experience again. I'm like, I'm not going to wait another 20 years to come back to this amazing connection I have to this country. And I became very clear that what I wanted to do was go back to where I started my first business, which was speaking and coaching. And yes, there's some other ideas bubbling in terms of that particular area and how to help more people. But I'm just so happy just now speaking at different conferences Obviously, I'm here to speak today, Sam, and it's great speaking to you on this podcast. And being able to coach other entrepreneurs and business owners in terms of the challenges that they have around scaling and people and their own wellness. And so just really enjoying spending my time doing that. And back to being able to read a lot, back to being able to pick up my kids, back to being able to, you know, redesign the life that I was. And I think, my goodness, why did I let go of that when I was on that path 20 years ago? But anyway, that was my journey to go and run a bunch of other things. And after having exited the, the business last year with all my sixty staff, I'm like, I, th- I think I want to live differently for the next decade or so. Wow. So that, that's the plan. Good on you.
0: That's really fascinating. I think it's great to hear about what you're up to and, and the powerful insights. You've, obviously, there's a deep connection with Nepal and, and that sounds amazing. Are you, gonna, are you making a pact to go back there a bit more often?
1: Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of organizations I met there that are doing some amazing work. One of my deep passions is to educate kids in third world countries, particularly girls, because I just felt that I had so many opportunities in my life that so many people don't get to have. And I've sat on a couple of boards and been an ambassador with some of all amazing organizations in India, and I met some great people in Nepal. So absolutely, I think I want to go back and do some of that work. And also I think work out how to connect of the amazing people I know in Australia into this amazing country, because I think they're trying to be more entrepreneurs and they're finding more jobs for their local people. And I guess what the Philippines have done so well, for example, in the great support systems and industries that they've created, for example, I've got three virtual assistants now in the Philippines who are all incredible and do amazing stuff. And so I think Nepal's also trying to do a similar sort of trajectory and would love to be able to help them do that. But also going, look, I don't need to always be in Nepal to do that. And, you know, I can do that sitting on a yoga mat and, and find the same space rather than going into Nepal. And just, yeah, just continuing to explore that in terms of how to educate more kids through the work that I'm doing and also linking it into some great organizations around the world.
0: Well, wow, that sounds amazing. How's parenting going for you at the moment?
1: Today is a tough day to ask that question, Sam. <laughs> I think you have those good days and bad days. Yes. I just remember, I remember saying to Scott, my husband, when I met him, because he was like, look, I, seriously, I'm telling you kids are overrated. And I just think that we will have so much more freedom. I'm like, you look, you've just been with a partner that just wasn't right for you. Trust me, like we are going to create magic here. And and he occasionally reminds me of that with, with two teenagers. Look, we're very lucky and I would never change change it for the world. But there are times that I, you know, lose who I am as a, as a person, as a woman. And there are times that I just miss having complete freedom. And there's times I just go, Oh my God, I think Scott was right. I just, you know, why did I do this? Not that I would ever change that because I know that that's mm. part of my path and part of my life, th- this lifetime. And I, I enjoy, I always say 80% of it. And I always say I love my kids, but I don't like them about 20% of the time. I find them challenging and rude. And, ungrateful for what they have, but they're incredible at the same time. And I learned so much, like I'm particularly technology wise, I'm just learning so many more things and they have a completely different view of the world. They definitely don't want to work hard, as hard as my husband and I do. So I think there's so much to be learned from those generations. And I'm moving into that mode where they want less guidance and advice, as I was saying earlier, and they want to branch out and make their own mistakes and do things, which is challenging as a parent. Because you're going, don't do that because it's not going to end well. Yes. And they're like, yes, thanks very much. I'm still going to go ahead and do it. So he's like, okay, off you go. And uh, not that you want them to fail, but they will fail. And that's their part of that journey in terms of all the stuff I did with my parents. My parents were like, please don't study engineering. I'm like, I'm going to study engineering. (laughs) Please don't marry a (laughs) white boy. I was like, I'm going to marry a white boy. You know, (laughs) like, and so I did all the things against that they suggested I do. And I think life's worked out okay. So I'm sure the kids will be fine.
0: Yeah, it, it is hard, isn't it? Having that, that ability to just let go and surrender and you can see the mistakes they're going to make and you want to try and intervene and help. But sometimes, as you mentioned, it just pushes them further in the other direction. Or
1: uh, they have advice now, Sam. I said to my son, who's 13, and I said to him, look, I'm thinking of, you know, one of these business coaches said that maybe I should look at going onto TikTok. He's like, mum, you're not going to be able to handle it. You're going to get feedback and you're not going to like it. <laughs> Just stay away from TikTok. That's the only platform I'm on that you let me be on. So anyway, then they've got lots of advice in terms of what you should be doing on business and how you should be creating the next the next thing. So it's pretty hilarious. That's the conversations funny. at dinner are pretty hilarious at our house.
0: That would be. Shivani, I think it's been really interesting having a yarn to you and having a chat. Thanks so much for your time. If people want to get in touch with you, how do they do
1: that? The best place is my website, which is askshivani.com. And it's just set up so you can ask any questions that you have. And I'm probably most active on LinkedIn, and that's also our Shivani LinkedIn.
0: Perfect. Well, thanks so much for your time, Shivani. It's been really insightful. It's been great to hear about your journey so far, and we certainly wish you all the well for the future.
1: Thanks so much for having me on.
0: Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode feel free to share with your friends and colleagues. And if you know someone working in mental health that you'd like to see featured on the podcast, please email any suggestions to us at membership at anzmh.asn.au. You can also stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next episode with you next week.